3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Erica L. Sanchez grew up in Cicero, Illinois, the town directly adjacent to Little Village, which is home to one of the largest Mexican communities in the country. As her parents went to their factory jobs each day, she dreamed of a life as a writer, of travel, of excitement, while battling depression and the different cultural expressions of patriarchy. Against the odds, she succeeded, publishing celebrated poetry, garnering a best-selling novel, and winning prestigious prizes, but as she documented her new memoir, Crying in the Bathroom, success didn't make her whole or secure her sense that a person like her could live the creative life that she wanted to live. We'll talk with her about sex and shame, Buddhism and brownness, and reproductive rights after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Erika L. Sanchez is the celebrated author of the novel I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter and the poetry collection Lessons on Expulsion. She's a professor in the Latin American Studies Department at DePaul University, and her novel is being made into a Netflix feature film. She joins me here today in Studio B to talk about her new memoir, Crying in the Bathroom. Welcome to Four America. Thank you so much. So we wanted to have you start off reading a passage from your memoir, you want to set it up or do you want to just go right in?
4: You know what? I'll just go right yeah, in. Yeah, go right in. Great. Sometimes I laugh harder at my jokes than anyone else. I should be embarrassed by this, but I'm not. I wouldn't have said it if I didn't think it was funny. I laugh all the time when I'm alone, which is often. It confuses or troubles strangers, but I'm totally okay with that. I consider laughing at my own jokes a sort of gift to myself. My inner monologues are very entertaining. The relationship we have with ourselves is the most important relationship we will ever have, and yet no one talks about it. We are conditioned to be afraid of solitude, of being alone with our thoughts. We fill our lives with screens and noise so we don't have to live with the silence when no one else is around. This is particularly true for women. The time I spent as a washed-up divorced woman in her 30s before finding real love and becoming a mother, was proof of this. Everywhere I went, everyone wanted to know where my husband was.
3: Erica Sanchez reading from her new memoir, Crying in the Bathroom. You know, we were thinking about how you've said that you set out to write characters like yourself because you didn't really see yourself represented in literature. So how do you see yourself? Who are you?
4: I am a complicated mother effer, is what I would say. Uh, there's a lot to me. There are many layers. I'm flawed. I'm also very smart. I'm funny. I'm a good mom. I'm, you know, uh, a depressive. Uh, I have bipolar disorder. You know, I'm all over the place. And I think what I was trying to do is get to the heart of what it means to be a person. It's messy. It's weird. It's weird. It's uncomfortable, et cetera. Yeah.
3: Can we talk a little bit about Cicero and where you grew up? Sure. Like many people may not realize that Chicagoland has one of the biggest Mexican-American populations outside of, you know, California.
4: Yeah, Cicero is a, a very working class, predominantly Mexican um, community right outside of Chicago, right on the the border, in fact. Um, and that's where I grew up, like right I could throw a stone, I could throw something, and I could reach Chicago. <laughs> so I, f- I feel like a Chicagoan in many ways. Um, but anyway, Cicero is extremely corrupt. It's run by, like, these terrible, terrible white leaders in a community that is very much brown. Uh, there's just so much um, deception and and lies and corruption. and And also there's just no, like no opportunities for young people oftentimes like either you're in sports or you don't really have much of anything and so i literally used to hang out in parking lots with my friends <laughs> like there was nothing to do and we you were you want like, to go to the
3: parking lot? Yeah, yeah. Sure. we Sounds would great. like go
4: to the to the asco the jewel asco and like look at the magazines and then go hang out in a parking lot and just thinking about that is so it's just so sad yeah. you know that there aren't any places for young people to to feel like alive and thrive and and do some some stuff
3: yeah I mean meanwhile you're there in this town that was you know famous for anti-black riots and, oh yeah you know
4: yeah let's not even start with that second one go <laughs> on and on.
3: um and your your parents are you know working in in factories and your dreams though are like extending way beyond Cicero and and Illinois
4: Yeah, I mean, as a child, I just read so much that the world opened up to me and I felt as if there was so much available. And, you know, for a girl like me, you know, brown, working class, these types of things aren't really available in a practical sense. Like, I'm not going to have my parents support to go to Europe, for instance, um, I had to figure it all out on my on my own, and so I decided first I'm going to be a writer. Also, I'm going to go to college. Um, I'm going to travel, and I'm going to be, you know figure things out on my own, um, which is not really acceptable for a young Mexican girl.
3: Yeah. How did your family respond to the idea that you were like I'm going to be a poet?
4: I think they were confused. They were like, what is that? Why are you doing it? And how are you going to make money? Because, you know, we grew up struggling. And so it didn't really make much sense for me to pursue a career that was not lucrative. It it seemed kind of silly. And eventually, I think my parents just started to see that, yeah, this is the only thing she wants to do. And I I was very persistent. I never wavered. And, when, you know, when I went to college, that's what I studied. And, and I just kept at it, went to grad school. And then eventually when the books came out, I think they started to really get what it was that I was after. Yeah. You know, we
3: have uh, another short excerpt for you to read. Just a, your, your description of feeling kind of like a, a misfit in where you, where you grew up.
4: Yeah. This is uh, about Cicero. Oh, what, one
3: more down, I think. We have a couple different uh Oh, sorry yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem, no problem.
4: <laughs> okay. Growing up, I always felt like a pariah, a misfit, and a disappointment in my traditional Mexican family and community. I was a foul-mouthed feminist rabble-rouser who dressed in black and always was getting into altercations when I perceived any kind of injustice. Then as I grew older, I was often one of the few people of color in professional settings, many times the only Mexican. So much of my humor is born from a sense of alienation, which is true of a lot of comedians. That's why they're always such miserable bastards.
3: So what's kind of interesting is you're describing really kind of two different types of alienation here, right? One that centers more in not sort of following... Traditional values and the other, more uh, in upper middle class assimilation uh, anxiety. Um, do you think those two things like are connected, or do you think they're kind of two distinct manifestations?
4: Uh, they're connected in a sense that brown women, women of color, are often just designated certain. Uh, positions in our society and we're not really expected to go beyond that and so in my family you know I was questioning a lot of the patriarchal you know ideas and um, I I questioned Catholicism because I felt it was really oppressive to women and you know that didn't make me very popular among my tías that's for sure and then you know as I grew older I was becoming more and more educated and entering these spaces that were mostly white. And I didn't belong there either. So what do you do? You know, you, you feel like you don't belong anywhere. You um, at least I made a joke of it all because otherwise I think I would have just crumbled. Um, to me, it, I, I coped with humor i coped with jokes because otherwise i would have just been crying in the bathroom the whole time
5: <laughs> <laughs> and with writing with writing too, and with writing right? of course of course. Yeah, yeah yeah
4: we're talking
3: with erica L. sanchez poet novelist essayist and professor at depaul about her new memoir crying in the bathroom we want to hear from you you know you were just hearing erica describe the difficulty of imagining you know living this kind of creative life who gets to live a creative life? Do you feel like where you're coming from, you can be a writer, artist, musician, follow your dreams? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, or KQD Forum. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And so in your, your writing life, did you start out like, just journaling in the parking lot? Is that where you get going?
4: <laughs> no, it was mostly in my room at night crying because <laughs> I was just so lonely and I didn't know how to cope with just being me, you know, and just and i didn't think I was that strange, but apparently everyone else did. Um and I felt that writing gave me the the way to imagine a bigger, better life and all the possibilities that were available or or that were present, not so much available. Um, And so writing was like the way that I survived it all. You Mm -hmm. know, I I needed to feel free and writing gave me that opportunity. What was that early work like? I mean, if you read
3: mine, it would be very embarrassing. So yours better be embarrassing. I mean, (laughs) it's
4: dreadful. Some of it was like, you know, little love poems about some boy that didn't, give a crap about me you know or um I would write about how lonely I was and you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) things of that nature eventually they started to get pretty good though like in high school I did have some bangers I will say um a lot of duds but but there there was some some nice moments in in all of that um you know all of that writing that that I produced and I realized I was good at it. I was like, oh, man, this is something that I can do that people, like, recognize me for. And it felt good. It felt really good.
3: So as you, you know, went back for this memoir and started to revisit some of these early times, was that hard for you or did you actually find it sort of pleasurable to see how far you had come?
4: I think both. I felt um, like I had to, in some ways, like, relive that. And that was very painful to... To really see myself, you know, as a young girl who didn't feel like she had many options and who felt really stuck, and also to acknowledge that I've been you know very lucky in my success.
3: We're talking with Erica L. Sanchez, poet, novelist, essayist, professor at DePaul. Her new memoir is Crying in the Bathroom. Her other books include the poetry collection Lessons on Expulsion and the young adult novel I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, which is being adapted into a movie. Uh, One of the lines I love from her book is to basically take aim at imposter syndrome and say that it's not that I believe myself to be fake or unworthy. It's that I question whether a person like me will be allowed to live the way I choose Do you think in your trying to live a creative life, you will be allowed to live that life? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Erica L. Sanchez. Her new memoir is Crying in the Bathroom. I wanted to start off with this segment with when did you cry in the bathroom? Like, where does that that come from?
4: Oh, my God. How many times have I cried in a bathroom? Let me see. Um, Impossible to count. But um, it started when I was very young because I was very depressed, but I didn't want anyone to know about it. And so I would just, you know, put in my little boombox in the sh- in the bathroom and like cry as i listen to Nine Inch Nails <laughs> it was really sad <laughs> but also you know i mean who hasn't who hasn't um, you know? i mean i think a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> but thank you um and then also um you know in high school i did it in when i was in the corporate world trying to like you know survive and just make money and and and, and figure out my life and there were so many times where I just felt like defeated by everything. And so I would just have like a meltdown <laughs> and then cry in the bathroom.
3: We asked our listeners on Instagram if they'd ever cried in the bathroom and got a lot of this back. Oh, most definitely. Yes, many times. Yes, lol, often. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sometimes I turn on the fan or water so nobody hears me there. Many times for many heartbreaking and painful reasons. And at least once a week, maybe twice. Oh Matter my God. of fact, I just got done. Oh. I know. I know. I mean, so one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you clearly have a robust zest for life and laughter, but you've also spent a lot of your life, as you're saying, you know, battling mental illness, crying in the bathroom to Nine Inch Nails. And it took many years to kind of find success with writing. Were you? How did you find your way through those contradictions of those kind of highs and lows, which are really kind of the core of this book?
4: Yeah, I mean, I didn't realize that it was my bipolar disorder for, you know, the longest time. I'm like, I'm just weird. <laughs> like, I'm just kind of off. um And the depression um, that I had, I just figured it was like the regular kind. And no one had ever proposed it to me. Like, hey, the reason that you're so productive is because you have these highs and lows. You probably have bipolar disorder. And I, you know, I didn't realize that until it was presented to me, When I was at Princeton teaching, I got a new psychiatrist. And, I mean, that was a really unfortunate situation. But um, the diagnosis made total sense to me. I was like, oh, yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm just at the top of the world. And I feel exuberant. I feel like I'm interconnected with everything. And then there are moments where I just feel like I want to disappear. And so... um, it was really hard managing that because you never know when it's going to shift, you know. And so I spent so much of my time just trying to, like, appear somewhat normal, you know, under, um, I don't know, the guise of just, you know, working. I was just mm-hmm. working really mm-hmm. hard. And I was like, well, if I work enough, then <laughs> yeah, that'll, it'll go that'll away. That'll fix it. Yeah. <laughs> you know,
3: I, among Latinas, there's... A lot of a a new discussion emerging around mental health. As you have been out there talking about these issues, what's the response been from uh, other women?
4: Oh my God. I mean, it just makes it all worth it, you know, to understand that there are so many other people like me who have struggled, are struggling, who never felt like they fit in anywhere and you know it it pains me to know that it's so common but it's also comforting to know that I wasn't the only one Mm -hmm. and so it's um it's been really cathartic sometimes it's like emotionally very overwhelming to me but um because of the
3: responsibility you feel like it puts on you
4: in a sense that's part of it and and, and part of it because I'm very empathetic and so like I I feel that pain. It's not like I'm just like, Oh, thank you. You know, and then I move on and have a cocktail. Like I wish, but, um, I, I think about it and it, it like sits with me and, and I feel like, you know, what I do is, is like important in that way, because I never really had that sort of reflection back. Like I had, you know, these literary heroes that really, um, just established themselves in my brain but there were so many there weren't many women writing about mental illness in a way that I felt like I could relate to
3: there weren't young Mexican women from Cicero
4: no no not from Cicero (laughs) you know I just talked to Sandra Cisneros and she's like Cicero is the most unpoetic place in the world how did you become a poet
3: (laughs) wow vicious it's true she's right
4: um, She's right.
3: That's so I, I'm also fascinated. You know, you said that you turned against Catholicism, you know, pretty early in life, but then you actually developed kind of this new spiritual sense as a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Can you talk? Can
4: you talk about the role that that's kind of
3: played in your in your life?
4: Yeah, you know, um, growing up, I always felt like there was something lacking in my spirit, and Catholicism made me feel terrible about myself. I'm like, why do I have to be from some man's rib why do I have to follow the instructions of my husband or my father you know I didn't believe in in living in that way and why is sex bad you know and so (laughs) I felt like that was not for me and I decided that um I was no longer Catholic my parents were horrified and then eventually you know I had always been tugged by the Buddhist faith and how it was about peace and enlightenment and, and the interrelatedness of all things, I felt that Buddhism made sense. And so it wasn't until, like, I was introduced to um, a certain kind of Buddhism, Nichiren Buddhism, that I decided that I was going to, quote, unquote, convert. And, and, you know, I, I think that it changed my whole life. I started to see myself very clearly. I started to understand my like terrible patterns in in relationships. I got a divorce. I I really felt that I was finally being honest with myself and I I feel like so grateful for that. Even though the truth was very painful, it was something that I really needed.
3: I mean, I think a lot of people certainly here in the Bay Area, certainly myself, have that sort of vague sense of like, oh, Buddhism is like interesting. You read some things. Did you find a particular community that helped you kind of go down that path, though, and kind of deepen your practice and and really understand how to be a practicing Buddhist?
4: Yeah, I met my friend Jackson, probably in 2015, 14, something around that time. And he was this very exuberant, self-assured person that I was very interested in. And, um, I, I loved so much about him and I was like, what, what is, what is this? You know? And he told me he practiced Buddhism and I was like, wait a minute, I need to practice Buddhism. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I had this feeling in my, in my gut that I needed to do this and, um, Eventually, you know, I was introduced to this, like, beautiful community of people who, like, only care about your well-being and peace and changing poison into medicine and, you know, impermanence, et cetera. And I was like, this is such a great feeling. You know, I felt really at home.
3: Mm -hmm. Let's we have a bunch of calls coming in for you. Let's first uh, go to Elvis in San Francisco. Hey, Elvis, can you hear us? Elvis? No, you can't hear us. All right, uh, let's go to Rosemary in Bridgeport. Hey, Rosemary.
6: Hi, how are you?
3: Hey, we're doing well. How are you?
6: Hi. I'm fine. We we live in in Halfloom Bay, but we're up here in Bridgeport in the Sierras, which is also really wonderful. But I just wanted to mention that I grew up in Cicero as well, on Central Avenue and Twenty Second Place. What? And my father was a, yeah. <laughs> and my father was a barber, so I'm perfectly familiar with the city and know exactly how it was. Except when I grew up there, even though it was a very uh, middle class, well, lower middle class uh, neighborhood, um, it was primarily Czechoslovakian, and I was Czech, chast- and I went to Czech school and went to morton high school. I don't Me too. know if I went to morton. Yep. Yeah. Oh man. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to <laughs> and I used to smoke outside of the uh, outside the bathroom window all the time. So, uh, <laughs> so That know, sounds exactly. like something I should have done, yeah. but I
4: didn't.
3: And then Rosemary, you got as far away from that as possible. You went to Half Moon Bay, one of the most beautiful places on the entire earth.
6: Yeah. Good know, for you. I know. I know. Well, I was very, very lucky, and in those days, and this was this was during when I was in seventh grade. Was when the the um, riots were, and my father, uh, so was very prejudiced. But I was lucky enough to have some really great teachers in high school who um, at Morton that kind of made me realize there was a world outside of Cicero.
7: Yeah. That's and
6: amazing. I was lucky. Yeah, and I was lucky enough to go to Northwestern on scholarship and then to Stanford on scholarship because, obviously, we didn't have the money. But in those days, money for uh, higher education was much easier yeah. to get. Yeah. But I, I felt that same way that there was so much more out there, and mm-hmm. I did use humor. And I was wondering if if um, your yeah. experience at any time was that you met someone or you did, or you knew someone That made you realize there was another
3: another
4: place, another way out.
3: That's a great question, Rosemary. What do you think, Erica?
4: Yeah, well, Cicero is notoriously racist. Let's just say that. (laughs) Um, Very anti-black. There was a lot of violence against black people there. Um, And so that's a really sad history to live with. But um, I had some amazing teachers who showed me that there was a world beyond Cicero. And, you know, one of... The teachers um, that I always remember is Mr. Sislow, freshman year English. He gave me packets of poetry that he put together for me. It was so beautiful and it meant a lot to me. I still have them somewhere. I'm not sure where, but I I, I need to dig them up. And he gave me uh, a gift because I won this um, English award. It was My Wicked, Wicked Ways by Sandra Cisneros. (laughs) And once I read that, it was over. I was like, oh, I can go to Europe. I can have lovers. Oh, my God. It was so exciting.
3: Even just that word lover. Lover. Right? You're just sort of like, boy, that it brings a whole complex of, uh, of thoughts and, and things into play. Uh, Liz in uh, Benicia, welcome to the show.
8: Hi. Hi. Um, I'm also from the uh, Chicago area uh, suburbs. Um, Park Ridge, actually, but um, I'm calling because I am curious. You know, to say that you're a poet um, is a pretty powerful thing. Um, I'm originally I'm originally from Norway. I had a father. I'm Jewish by you know heritage. My father took me to a Baptist church, to a Lutheran church. He really showed me kind of every different kind of religion, and you know, kind of choose your own. Choose your own um, path. What do you think of these stories? What do you think of this? Mm -hmm. You know, I have bipolar disorder. I've had a very, um, you know, a lot of complex and a lot of things in life. I, you know, I've had poems published here and there in college, and Mm -hmm. that would have been a great thing to to major, and I was a creative writer. I don't think I could have said I'm a poet. Mm -hmm. Even now, (laughs) I've had to be published to say I'm a poet. I don't, it doesn't even really exist as right now. (laughs) And just to say that, even if you, I mean, obviously you're published and you study, but how do you, before that, get to the point where you, you can say that? Imagine yourself
3: into being basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. listen, That's a great question.
8: How do you really start that? Mm -hmm. Even though I've had all these experiences and I have some background, where do I go from there?
4: Yeah. Good question. Yeah. I just really owned it. I was 12 years old. I read Ed- Edgar Allan Poe. And I'm like, I can do this too. I had this audacity. I don't know where it came from, honestly, probably from my ancestors.
3: And, or maybe Lisa Simpson.
4: And Lisa Simpson too. Who turns
3: out to be one of your favorite.
4: I love her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah she's just wonderful. And so, yeah, I I declared myself this. And I just kept doing it and I kept like publishing little things here and there. And, you know, I would introduce myself as a poet. Uh, One of my friends who I, you know, mentioned in the book, Judy from um, the Fulbright in Madrid. She remembers that the way that I introduced myself was, hi, I'm Erica and I'm a poet. (laughs) And that really makes me laugh that I thought I was I was that you know, important, you know, and I, and I want every brown girl to f- feel that audacity, to feel that um, emboldened to say such a thing, to make such a declaration. Poetry is beautiful. Poetry is what makes me able to write these, these books, these prose books. Mm-hmm. Without that, I just, I don't even know where I'd be. Oh,
3: man. Um, let's bring in uh, Isabella in Mountain View.
4: Good morning.
9: I am overjoyed to be speaking with um, Ms. Sanchez. I am a language arts teacher. I teach middle school language arts in East Menlo Park, California. It is a primarily Latin community. uh, Most of my students, 98% of them are immigrants from Latin American countries. And um, two years ago, there was a student who joined during distance learning and we knew nothing about her. She never said anything. She was very quiet. Um, She got into some Kind of uh, bullying situations. And she's a seventh grader who came back into the classroom this past school year. And I chose your book, I am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, as a choice for book club. And she chose it. And I need to tell you, I am so grateful because it opened the door to this girl's life. And she started to share in writing, not verbally. And unbeknownst to all of us, she is an eloquent writer. And your book unlocked it, and it just was, like, inspirational for her, inspirational for the fellow students to see this girl they knew nothing about open up. Um, I love so it. So I just wanted to thank you for that work, and especially to bring a voice for—there really isn't much out there, outside yeah. of um, Sandra Chisneros, you know, which I also teach. Yeah. Um, so,
3: yeah. thank you. Yeah. I mean— I'm I'm like getting ready to tear up just listening to that call. I can't imagine having written the book that got that reaction.
4: I've I've had a lot of very beautiful moments with readers or, you know, reading letters from people who have said things of this nature and thank you for sharing that story. I love that. I I really want young women to feel confident I want them to feel like they have something to contribute to the world and have a sense of purpose and so you know that's why I write the things that I write because I was that girl I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere and so I'm so happy to know that this young woman has in some ways flourished as a result of reading this book I know books changed my life and it's so beautiful to know that my books have also changed other people's lives
3: yeah you know how far do you think that representation gets us like do you see it as kind of an end in of itself to see you know young brown women like represented in literature or is it kind of a means to something else
4: i think it needs to just evolve and so like we're right I feel like at the beginning, we don't have much representation. You know, Sandra Cisneros came out with The House on Mingo Street the year that I was born, which is 1984. And, you know, I, I hadn't really read anything like that since then. And so it, it we're like barely getting our foot in the door. And so I think we just need to write our truth, whatever that may be. And, you know, my story is only one. I am one of many voices and and, and I welcome, I hope to see much more uh, variety in the future.
3: Yeah, clearly a story that's connecting with, with lots of our listeners, too. We're talking with Erica L. Sanchez, poet, novelist, essayist, professor at DePaul. Her new memoir is Crying in the Bathroom. And we're loving hearing from you about Cicero, about what it's like to try and live a creative life, about crying in the bathroom. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Also, of course, comments, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQD Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Erica L. Sanchez, poet, novelist, essayist, professor at DePaul. New memoirs, Crying in the Bathroom. You might know her from her other books, like the bestseller, I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, which is being adapted into a movie by Netflix. Uh, she also has a, of course, she is a poet, as she <laughs> proudly announced from 10 years <laughs> on. Uh, her poetry collection is Lessons on Expulsion. Um, We are really bringing out, you are really bringing out, um, all the Cicero people. Jenny in Mexico, welcome.
2: Hi there, this is Jenny. Hi.
3: Hey, can you hear us?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I can hear you. You can hear me okay?
3: Yeah, yeah, go ahead.
2: Perfect. Thank you. Um, hi there. So I'm Jenny. I'm also from Cicero. Oh, Jesus. Eric, I just want to <laughs> say thank you because I'm Mexican American for myself uh, from a family of immigrants. And you're, to me, you're one of the first big Latinas to come out of Cicero, at least from my generation. I identify as a millennial, but um, I actually went to school with your brother. I had a class with your brother. I'm Martinique. So wait, wait. I knew. With Omar? <laughs> no. Um, Mario? So Mario. Sorry. Mario. Mario. Yeah, yeah. Mario. Oh my God.
4: I'm sorry
2: that you said hello. I but, no, seriously, you, you know, you helped me envision myself to do, to do big things for myself. Like I growing up in Cicero, like there weren't many high expectations for girls like us. Like mm-hmm. I was congratulated at age 17 for reaching that age without having gotten pregnant yet. Like there was oh, I remember no high that. expectations. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was awful. And we had, my husband and I, we had done community work in Cicero. We were feeling burnt out. And then, you know what? We're like, you know what? Let's set our, we set our sights on moving to Mexico. So we moved to Mexico about a year and a half ago. And it's just been quite a journey because we also have a YouTube channel where we are trying to pursue like this creative career full time. So I'm referencing Alexis's uh, question here about trying to live creatively. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to do that when you don't have many people who look like Mm -hmm. you. So I just want to say thank you for paving the way for millennial creatives and and helping, you know, send the message that screw it. If we want to be the change like we wanna see change. We have to be the change, right? So we went ahead and, and pursued that and I just wow. wanna say thanks for being a good product out of Cicero. Oh,
4: thank you. Yeah. I remember, yeah, there was a, a very high level of teen pregnancy in Cicero. Yeah. And probably mm-hmm. I think well, I think it's it's lessened, it's lowered. Yeah. But um it's tough being yeah. a girl there.
3: Thank you so much, thank Jenny. You. Great to great to hear from you. Um I, I well let's let's go into some of the more difficult parts of the memoir. The memoir is very fun; it's very funny, but it's also there are really tough components of it too. I mean, you share your truth as you as you've been saying, and in the chapter, you know, difficult son, you wrote that you well. Let, let's just have you kind of set this up. You ended up making the decision to have an abortion, mm-hmm. and what happened?
4: Well. I unraveled, essentially. Um, And I mean, there were so many different factors. Partly there was a change in medication. There was a change in um, my relationship status. Like, I was going through a lot. I really had uh, a hard time keeping it all together. And so having an abortion was something that I felt was extremely necessary. It was life and death. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... um, I can read you a little passage if you yeah, like. Yeah,
3: this is like after you've after you've done it. Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah. Um I made a brief trip to Chicago for a Memorial Day weekend. I stayed only a few days because I was still in my outpatient program. My family knew about the hospitalization, of course, but they didn't know about the abortion. It's not that I was ashamed of it, but I didn't want them to hurt with me. Mm. It was also difficult for me to talk about it. I couldn't even discuss it in group therapy, and I had concluded I would never be able to write about it. I couldn't imagine the world knowing about the worst moment of my life.
3: Mm. So what was it like then when you decided, OK, I I have to write about it, I'm assuming is why you did?
4: Yeah, it took a lot of time and I needed to really heal from it and a profound wave before I was able to do that. I think during that time, I was so mentally ill that I couldn't even foresee a future for myself. And so like, I, I was like, this is just never gonna be in print. I'm never gonna tell anybody. This is awful. And, um, you know, as I recovered from my mental illness, I I started to to feel like myself again and eventually I was able to write about it and make sense of it and I think one thing that is so important to me as a person is making meaning out of suffering because otherwise it just feels like it just happened for no reason and so I had to like make this into a story for myself essentially and then now it's available to everybody else and and I think people need to understand that abortion, for many of us, it is an excruciating choice, a choice that you know we don't take lightly. That um, is is very very painful, um, and that should only be decided by us because we're the ones who, you know, have this body containing, you know, whatever you the fetus, whatever you want to see it as. Um, I don't think that my life is disposable enough to just endure a pregnancy that I cannot maintain just because some politician thinks that's the right thing to do.
3: You know, you also wrote that the abortion debate you think lacks nuance. Uh, Can you talk about why, like what you mean by that and why you feel like that's problematic?
4: I think it's understand to, I think it's, critical to understand that we look at the different complexities of what abortion means to different people. And so now we're seeing like these really extreme cases. Um, I was just watching MSNBC this morning and uh, horrified by some of the, you know, descriptions of what's going on. Um, You know, young girls who are raped, not being able to get abortions, women being left to almost die because, Otherwise, the doctors might get in trouble for intervening. You know, it's just there's so many different types of stories. And oftentimes they're not very public because they are very painful. And I and, and I also think that there's a fear of, you know, saying my abortion was awful. You know, a lot of people might take that as, oh, you shouldn't have gotten one. But if I wouldn't have gotten an abortion, I would have died. So it's just very complicated. And I want I just, I want more compassion. I just don't even understand, like, what the F we're doing here.
3: How, you know, you did end up having a child later. Um, thank Our engineer thanks you for uh, <laughs> centering yourself. Um, it's hard for me. Uh, yeah. um, when you did have a child, did it change anything about the way that you saw, you know, your your previous decisions in your life?
4: I felt that, If I hadn't had that abortion, I wouldn't have had the family that I have now. And my family means everything to me. My daughter is 18 months old. She's beautiful and vibrant. She has an amazing life. A lot of people love her. I get to care for her in the way that I want to care for her. You know, like I have the resources, I have the time, I have all of these privileges that, you know, previously I wouldn't have had. And so I think it's so important that, People understand that it's critical that women decide when and how to have children. And, um, you know, if someone would have, I don't know, try to stop me from getting an abortion because of some nonsense law, I don't know what I would have done. Yeah. I just don't know. I'm afraid to even think about it.
3: Yeah. Let's uh, go back. Back to the phones, uh, Jose in San Jose. Welcome to the show.
7: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah.
3: Um,
7: first of all, I just want to yeah, sure. yes. Oh yeah,
3: yeah. Go ahead. Sorry about that.
7: Oh yeah, no. I was just I just wanted to touch on the theme that um, uh, it's so it's so great to have somebody so positive, and you know to and just to mention uh, that living creatively. Um, I tried to live, you know, I was uh, later, um, I later became a musician, a tattoo artist, um, you know, all, all that cool stuff. Wonderful. And wanted to become that, you know, I wanted to become live a, live a creative life, not just do a job as a robot, you know, that mm-hmm. you have to do. And, you know, and recently, well, about two years, I, I got with um, my girlfriend. And um, my place was a recording studio, so I had to get I had to <laughs> get rid of a lot of my stuff, which hurted a lot. Jose, and, did you have you know, a bed um, frame?
3: That's the big question. <laughs> did you have a bed frame? Jose?
7: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's like you know, I I said, well, I, it looks as like it's not gonna happen anymore, you know. Mm. So I sold a lot of my stuff, and I said, I'm just gonna become another another you know person, you know, just living my life working and doing all that and so it's it's a funny thing i when i would get excited i'd even do like uh air guitar and go yeah and (laughs) after 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 that that i you know that i wasn't going to be that i thought myself not gonna go that route i lost i lost like you know everything like i just Mm thought not even wanted to listen to music and all that but something special happened um my sister had a baby four years ago and now my nephew is so in love with Slipknot and wants to be a, um, he made a, he made, he made a, like a big poster that he had to do a, a project at school. And it, one of them said, what did you want to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? It said, I want to be a rock star in a heavy metal band. So I, I was it. like, so that so it sparked me. I said, you know what? You know, I used to, I, I went to school for drums. I learned how to play and everything. And I said, now I, I found my meaning. I want to pass my dream to my nephew. And, uh. and I didn't have the resources. I didn't have the resources that I had growing up. So now I bought him, I bought him a miniature drum set. I had, he graduated Aww. to first grade. I bought him electric miniature guitar. And um, every time I go over, I try it in a school And we jump on. We, you know, we do what we can. And I just want, to, I want him to have my dream yeah. like, as, as much as I want to cry. Like, I want to see him do it. That's beautiful. <laughs> like, like, but you,
4: know you could still mean? live it's your like, dream. You could still do it. You know? Yeah. Just yeah, for yourself. You not know. not to make money, but for your own well-being. Yeah.
7: Yeah, actually, that's that's a pretty good point. I actually started buying my own drum set, like, custom. <laughs> so I can pick up, um, brush on my skills and teach my nephew how to play. So all oh, in all, you know what I mean. Yeah, like, I love so, it, Jose. Thank, thank you.
3: you. Yeah, not every not every creative life is going to end up with you, you know, on the New York Times bestseller <laughs> list, for example, or you know, recording hits. But I I love it, Jose. Passing it on to your to your nephew. What do you what were you thinking as he was talking?
4: I was thinking how amazing it is that he feels like he can you know, change someone's trajectory, his nephew, by giving him these skills and this love and the support. And not all children have that, unfortunately. And I think about how lucky my daughter is to have so much support and she can do virtually anything in our eyes and we're going to be happy. And so there's so many like brown children who just don't have the resources. They don't have the encouragement. And, and it really makes me sad. Um, but I also I feel like you can't give up what you love because that's what makes life worthwhile you know and so even if you can't make money from it i didn't make money from writing for a long time let me tell you i was broke as a joke (laughs) i mean you could read it in my book now available in stores and i feel like i i think that there's there's nothing in this world that should take that joy from you um if if it can be helped. And so I encourage you to do your creative things no matter what, just because you love to do them. Yeah. Not because you want to be famous, but because that's who you are.
3: All this is making me realize too, how much support, I mean, I have my dad here in the studio with us. It's just making me realize how much support I got from my parents and kind of exploring this creative life, even though I'm sure they would have loved if I had been a doctor or an engineer or some more guaranteed <laughs> path. Um... It worked out, Dad. This is proof. That's lovely. I love to see it. <laughs> um, let's bring in uh,
7: Elvis in San Francisco. You're back, Elvis. Hi. Hey. Hi, Alexis. Thank you, Erica. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say we've had a lot of overlap because although I did not grow up in Cicero, <laughs> I grew up in neighboring little village. Oh, Damn yes so i i have to tell you, these are amazingly beautiful communities um you know with with challenges just like anything else and I wanted to to say thank you because um you know a, a lot of what transpires in these communities is not it's it's far from normal it's far from abnormal and um you know there's a lot of violence and things that transpire and you are um yeah. i yeah, you're just you're you're a star in the community. Thank you.
4: Thank you so much. Oh. That means a lot to me. I
7: say hey,
3: thank you. Thanks for calling, and yeah. uh, glad to have you in our uh, community here uh, too. You know, I I want to end it on um, your grandmother. You know, we oh, talked yeah. talk about your daughter. Um, tell us a little bit about your that that particular ancestor.
4: Which grandmother, Clara. Clara, Okay. Yeah. Well, I think about her a lot. Um, I think I get my spirit from her in many ways. Um, There's a chapter in which I write about her encounter with this man who had tried to kidnap her as his wife. She was 11 years old and she's in the country. She's alone and afraid. And one day this young or her father had been killed murdered and so one day this friend of his shows up to kidnap her and um she decides she's going to shoot him and i'm not gonna tell you what happens after that but it's pretty cool and um i think that my grandmother is like one of the most resilient people ever and she has like this sort of um fighting spirit that I, I think you know I inherited, and so I, I dedicate the book to her because so much of my strength, I feel like, comes from her. Mm, that's beautiful.
3: Uh, we had a comment come in. Lawanda writes, I'm Buddhist also, changed my life, practice a long time. Wonderful show, and thank you so much. Thank you. Um, Erica, you have a couple of local events uh, coming up we want to make sure people know about. This evening, you're down in Santa Cruz, right? 7 p.m. at Bookshop Santa Cruz?
4: Yep. I'm very excited for that. Um,
3: uh Yeah. And then tomorrow, you've got um, Wednesday, July 20th, 10 a.m. in Livermore at Town Center Books. Yeah?
4: Yeah. I've never done a morning gig, so we'll see how that goes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
3: Good luck, everyone. Don't leave her hanging (laughs) in Livermore (laughs) if you're there in the East East Bay. um, Do you like readings? Is that something you ended up liking?
4: I do. I love interacting with people. It's amazing. Um, I mean, I get exhausted for sure, but it's very satisfying to see like what the, the work means to people.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much. We have been talking with Erica L Sanchez, poet, novelist, essayist, professor at DePaul. Her new memoir is crying in the bathroom. Her other books include the poetry collection, lessons on expulsion And the young adult novel, I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, which, as you heard on this show, changes lives. It's also being adapted into a movie. Thank you so much for joining us, Erica.
4: Thank you so much. This was wonderful.
3: So much fun. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim.